0: Roland Roccicelli is a man of the theatre. His is a celebrated career of more than 50 years. Comedian Billy Connolly said of him, his name is like alphabet soup. Roccicelli spent his childhood watching the unfolding dramas in Gualia, a town on the northeastern goldfields of Western Australia. He was schooled by nuns and monks in New Norcia. It was a unique childhood recounted in his engaging memoir, and Be Home Before Dark. A life in the arts eventually called, and in 1966 he served an apprenticeship with a theatre company in Perth, learning much of the craft that would support him in his future roles stage manager, actor, director, playwright, and company manager. His work with impresarios Harry M. Miller and Ked Brodziak on productions of The Rocky Horror Show, Hair, and Jesus Christ Superstar. He's worked on Broadway and The West End with luminaries like Ingrid Bergman, Debbie Reynolds and Googie Withers. He's written the plays Now You Can Eat Father Christmas and Letters from the Heart. A new play is in the works. As a broadcaster, he can be heard regularly on radio, sharing his infinite knowledge of all things entertainment. He is wonderful company, erudite and charming. We managed to record an extensive conversations despite the odd entertaining menagerie of interruption. Who was Lil and Herman. Herman? Who's the blonde, Lil? Lily,
1: Lily and Herman. You do recognise those names, don't you?
0: The monsters.
1: Yes.
0: <laughs> well, Roland, thank you for joining. My pleasure. Me on stages today. My pleasure. Um, It's been a very rich life that you've had and a rich career, but I guess that's not um, a surprise, being born on the goldfields. Yeah, well,
1: people say, how did you end up in the theatre? Well, where else would you end up? When you think about the Catholic Church and my father Italian, there were 28 nationalities working on the Sons of Gaulia gold mine, which was 147 miles northeast of Kalgoorlie on the edge of the Great Victoria Desert the Catholic nuns with all the Latin, the Latin mass and the priest and all of that, Christmas cards as they were in those days, holy cards, which was my introduction to to religious art, the food of all of those 28 nations, the languages ringing in your ears, um, the music, of course, of the church and the, and the nuns and all of that. Again, um, it's hardly surprising that, you know, you would end up in the theatre.
0: Quite a theatrical existence, really. Of course, it? yeah. It,
1: it, it so is. you're going to to church from a very young boy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My mother was married three times. Biri was an extraordinary woman, married three times, um, two Italians and one Yugoslav. And while she grew up in a she grew up in the Salvation Army girls' home in Cottesloe in Western Australia. Um, she was determined that the children. She said that you know she agreed that the children all be brought up Catholics, and so we were. And my sister went away to boarding school, and I went away to boarding school. And um, in fact, my father sold his only asset, a house for two hundred and fifty pounds, to send me away to boarding school. That's a real kind of commitment to your children, isn't it? An it investment. Yes. yes. Well, it doesn't. sort of, I it probably wouldn't happen like that these days. I mean, it's not considered to be so important. But he he realised that probably. Education was the only way that, I, that you would escape working in the mines. He was a shepherd. From, he came from uh, Meliano, um, north of Lucca in Tuscany, and, and he was a shepherd, uh, subsistence farmers really. And so from all of that, um, I ended up in, in the theatre. But I always but it was partly to also with the ABC radio that that I'd listen to that every day and hear bum, ba, da ba ba dum bum bum Blue Hills and I'd run and say, Quick Mum, Gwen Meredith's on, Gwen Meredith's on, you know and and she'd come and listen to Gwen Meredith. Um so and the Village Glee Club was my favourite programme, was to hear again when lights are low the voice in the old village choir. You know, it it's odd the things that children like and um, and and that you listen to,
0: and, and she should, thought I uh, was odd. We should acknowledge we're sitting in the middle of a, a menagerie here. Yeah,
1: and, and and I've just moved house, and there's, <laughs> there's, there are boxes, and we're si- we're sitting almost sitting on the floor. There's no legs on the sofa, and, and it is a bit chaotic. But but I've just I've only just moved in, and there's dogs wandering around. So and that, that
0: cluttering was a yeah, visit with, from Herman. Was Herman?
1: And, yes, 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 somebody yes. else's dog, not who's just come to stay. Yes,
0: <laughs> the dog who came to dinner.
1: That's we should write a play, shouldn't we? The dog who came to dinner. And never went home. <laughs>
0: so you've doc- documented that uh, that growing up yes. in uh, a memoir called And Be Home Before Dark. Yeah. Yeah. A childhood on the edge of nowhere. Mm. Was it a tough childhood? No, not
1: at all. Yeah, but people say, isn't it interesting because people think that it must have been and they read that book and they say, Oh, we Colette Mann said, I'll never be mean to you again after reading that book. You know, it was but it wasn't. I didn't know that it was that it was um, i didn 't go without anything i mean if you, the things i 've just told you about the food was wonderful and all of that um, and uh, even writing it wasn 't difficult. It was difficult to find the voice of the little boy um, and and I tried to write it without judgment. I just wanted to tell the story as the little boy remembered it, and that was that was the really That was the difficult thing. And and the editor kept saying, no, 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 you haven't got... And then I sent him something and then he came back and he wrote, bingo. He said, now, that you've you've found the voice. And once I found the voice, it was really easy to tell his story because... There are no judgments in it, as I say, and it's just an observation from a time and a place, the like of which the world will never know again. It sold 25,000 copies. It was very funny. They said to me, oh, we're so pleased. You know, your book's a bestseller. I thought, oh, maybe it sold a million. They said 25,000. I said, oh, is that all? <laughs> I said, that sounds rather like a flop. And he, I said, I've got one friend who sold 600 million copies of her books and another one who sold 400 million copies. So you can imagine, I feel rather, you know, Jackie Collins sold 400 million and Barbara <laughs> Cartland sold 600 million. They were both friends. And I thought, oh, dear. So there you go.
0: And you you wrote a play, a one man play that you performed. Yeah. Now you can eat Father Christmas, mm, mm. which documented a lot of the characters. Yes, you knew. that
1: was my the life of my mother, which was extraordinary. But but it was all it was called Now You Can Eat Father Christmas because um, there was a little sugar Father Christmas that every year sat on the Christmas on top of mother, the Christmas cake that Beria made. And every year I'd say, Mom, can I eat Father Christmas? No, you cannot eat Father Christmas. I'll put him back in the kitchenette where he belongs and there he'd sit for another year. And occasionally you'd say, I think a little two-legged mouse has been having a bit of nibble at Father Christmas. And I'd say, oh, oh, you know, pretending nothing had happened. And then years later, um, this little box arrived and uh, I opened it up. And there was this little Sugar Father Christmas. And there was a note from Berea and she said, Now you can eat Father Christmas. Love Mum. You know, I didn't eat him, of course, I kept him. I still have him. Um and so that was the that was the inspiration for writing the play about her life, which was so extraordinary. Again, these women, you know, they pioneered part of this country and um People don't know about it. And it's really very sad. When you think of those Italian women who came, I've just done a documentary called The Italian Girls from Golia, which is, we have to finally finish the edit, but it was the daughters of the mothers who came halfway around the world. They didn't even know where the country was on the map, you know, let alone where they were going. And they came from, you know, the the, the Valtellina and from Toscana and Bergamo and all these wonderful places in Italy to the redness and the awfulness of of the goldfields. well, I shouldn't say awfulness because it's very beautiful. And they came to love Gaulia which was the town where they lived. It's and because their husbands were, were their miners? Their were miners and there. And, were well, like. Herbert Hoover, who went on to become the 31st president of the United States of America, was having problems getting miners to work on the Sons of Gaulia gold mine. So he went to Bergamo in in in, in Lombardia and, and he brought back these Italians and he started this mass migration of Italians to Australia and they came to work in the gold mine, on the Sons of Gaulia gold mine. And then they kept coming here and there are, um, you know, the, the the Bergamasks say that there are there are you know more young men buried in, in the Gaulia Leonora Cemetery than there are back there because so many of them came here and then they brought their wives and they made their lives there and, and they changed the, the face of Australia for all time. The women were extraordinary and so I've talked to these girls about growing up you know Clara Paravigini and Lucy Tognali and Roma Scolari and Agnes Agnese and Maria Bendotti, you know all of these girls who did have an Australian and an Italian existence, which is what I had. I grew up with both. I, I didn't grow up as an Australian. I grew up as a, as a sort of half Italian or half Ding, as we used to say. Um, and that was the really interesting existence with all that marvelous food as I, I mean, I, I, I do go on about the food, but it was just that I remember when I went away to boarding school and I saw the sort of food that I thought, oh, do people really eat that? I my, you know, Some of the things my father called pig food, you know, and yeah. we wouldn't eat it. And um, there was always a ham hanging on the back veranda and grape vines and passion fruit vines and huge watermelons that cracked like a stock whip when you cut them and enormous rock melons and, and our own vegetable garden. And so... It was a, it was an extraordinary existence, and so that was the reason. Getting back to a now, you can eat Father Christmas, which is why I wrote the play because, Biria, Biria said that she lived in Murran Murran, and there were three houses. They were in a sort of a triangle. They're each a mile apart, and she said. They were some of the happiest years of her life. She lived in a bough shed and and she said, I wasn't born, it was my brother Louis and my sister Nita, and in the winter months she said we used to put chaff bags on their bed because when you, uh, over them when they were in bed, because when you woke up in the morning it was so cold, there was, the ice had settled on the ice had formed on the top of the of the, the the chaff bags and she cooked on an open fire and my mother didn't notice the color of people's skin which was why i really wanted to write about her and um she she had Aboriginal women they used to be called full bloods in those days the gins as they were called um, and I said that it was interesting when I wrote and be home and be home before dark my editor said oh you can't call them gins and half castes and I said but that's what we call them that's what the little boy knew them as so I rang that marvellous whose name goes out of, straight out of my head she was the magistrate in New South Wales the Aboriginal magistrate I've forgotten her name I have as well uh, nice. never mind but you know who I mean yep. and, and she wrote me back and said and she phoned me and said no 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 you must call them gins and lubras and that's what they called us in those days you know and and so I did but Biria had these couple of gins who used to come to her house the Aboriginal full-blooded Aboriginal women and she used to invite them and they didn't speak the language but we had a Kelvinator refrigerator so she had ice blocks and she used to put ice blocks in water for them and they were fascinated they didn't know couldn't work it out you know and she'd make them a sandwich and then one day the policeman came knocking on the door Roy Patterson he was a friend of, of Beria's and he said Rocky which was her nickname Rocky what are you doing with those what are you doing he said about what he said what do you do with those gins in your house she said what do you mean what it's my house he said Rocky it's against the law you're not allowed to have them in your house she said it's my bloody house I'll do what I like she said put me in jail and he said Rocky, you're a nuisance. You know, I know I am. I always have been, and, and always will be. Always will be. And she stayed a bit. So, and and it was because she just refused. And I was never allowed to tease the uh, because they weren't allowed to be in the town before nine o'clock in the morning. They had to be gone by four o'clock in the afternoon. Well, most of them didn't have a uh, you know what what's the fancy watch that everybody wears the big, the real brand you know um, the the really fancy brand. What am I? Not Cartier would you. you, you you know, you're as bad as I can't remember anything. (laughs) You know, they didn't have one of those watches. Rolex. Rolex. They didn't, they didn't have a Rolex, did they? To check the time to be gone by four o'clock. So, so that was, that was part of the problem. Um, and they'd lock them up and she wouldn't subscribe to any of that. And I was never allowed to tease them or do any other kids used to throw stones at them. And and, and, and I remember Vic Mazza, the owner of the shop, the Aborigines would, they'd have money, you know, and they'd come to the door and they'd come in and he'd chase, say, get out of here, you black bastards. And he'd chase them out of the shop, you know, and all they wanted to do, you know, it was. and my mother couldn't understand this. And she used to take their money and go in or she'd go in and buy it and just give them to them and send them on their way. But it was, it, 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 that was one, another one of the reasons that I wanted to write about her because she was this extraordinary woman who, as I say, didn't notice the colour of people's
0: skin. And important chapters of history, which we need to record, otherwise oh, they're forgotten. Yes, yes.
1: Yeah. Well, none of, I'm the first child born of the goldfields who's actually committed their story to paper. Other people have sort of made half assed attempts at it and yeah. done bibs and bobs, but to actually write it and have it properly published and documented and all of that. And, and um, it, it's fascinating. I, I can't believe the number of emails that I received from people all over all over Australia cane cutters who, who who because I read it on the ABC and and I'm really pleased not for me but for the little white-haired boy who was in in the story it was the first time ever um, Gary Bartholomew produced it for radio, ABC radio, and, and it was every, every day for four weeks. There was a 15 or 10 minute or whatever it was episode and they had to repeat it immediately. The response was so, and it's the first time they've ever done that. But it just goes to show that, you know, if you take the Australian stories that are so good and you do something with them, people do respond to them in the way that they, they should respond. Um, and, and, and and that was the, the marvellous thing about it being, being on the ABC. But I did get all these emails from cane cutters in Queensland and uh, emails and saying, you know, I, I, I can't believe I've read your book and, and I grew up and I, they, it just goes to show that we all walk the same, um, the, the same track, but it's it a sort of different path, you know. It's, it, we're, we're all on the same journey and, and many of the experiences that kids had then in the 50s, um, as I did, um, were the same all over Australia.
0: How did you amuse yourself as a boy? Was there a local cinema?
1: Oh, you had pictures on Wednesday and Saturday. I didn't like the pictures very much. I, I used to go, go to sleep. I mean, I still do. I, I sit down and fall asleep straight away, um, unless it's really good. I mean, so obviously back then... Um, I used to read all that, time: um, Secret Seven and The Famous Five and all of those Enid Blyton and things and The School Friend and The Girl's Crystal and The Lion and anything. And fascinating I used to read the Daily Sketch I think it was the Daily Sketch and used to send um, bundle up a week's edition and publish them in, in a sort of weekly edition with a yellow cover on it and and I used to read about people like and I know I wish I had the list in front of me because I'd read about Jaja Gabor and Ava and Magda Gabor and Lana Turner and Doris day and Debbie Reynolds and Barbara Cartland and Grace Kelly and Ingrid Bergman uh, and I'm trying to think of all of these names and um, All of these women, I used to read about them and all of those people I've just listed, um, Deborah Carr and some of the men, Douglas Fairbanks Jr. and Stanley Holloway, um, Diana Dawes, I'd read about all of these people. All of those people I've just mentioned I've come to work with or know at some stage in my life. And little did I realise that as I sat there in the wash house Tippy, the dog, my dog Tippy, had a had an uh, old uncut uh, cut velvet armchair that was his bed in the in the washhouse, and I used to go and sit there and read these things about all these people. And years later, they all passed through my life. And I, I, who, whoever would have thought that that little boy one day would be with all of those people. It was How fabulous. Fa- it was extraordinary, yeah. extraordinary. I used to tell some of them, you know, and they'd just laugh like a drain and say, you know, and then, of course, relate their experiences. I mean, you, know, you, you discover that they too had had similar backgrounds, not quite, but, you know, that they came from impoverished backgrounds and suddenly the talent had, had come to the, to the fore and, and, and they became who they were. Interesting.
0: So, so, boarding school was in New Norcia, yeah, I believe. Another yeah, beautiful yeah. part of Western mm, Australia. That was
1: interesting. Yeah, nice time there, and I loved all of that, and, and, and music, and, and Latin, and languages, and all of those things. School productions. Was there a, a drama output? Not really. There? No, no. I I, I, the, I, 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 was the only boy who did speech and drama, and I played piano seriously. So that was for a long, you know. And I, 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 they thought I had the gift. But I didn't. I was I was very good. I was better than most, but I not as good as some. I was never going to be Horowitz or Seatishlav Richter. and I thought or David like, Helfgott. Or already David <laughs> Helfgott. Indeed, never going to be that. Um and I still so I'm, I've got an organ just here. I I play, you know, um bits and pieces for myself and the pianos in the garage because we can't get into the house, it's too big. Um so that that was all very important and um the music was the was the really important thing and, and I enjoyed it immensely, I, and but um, I had to play so much and work so hard at it that it really has rather destroyed. I don't listen to music very much now. I've got hundreds of CDs and I never play them. I can't. I buy them. I can't help myself. I go, oh, oh, and you and I come home and listen to it and I turn it off and I don't put it back on. So you prefer silence? Mm, I do. I had so much music as a child. I used to be in the they'd get me up at half past five in the morning and I'd be in the music room at a quarter to six every morning practicing it's too early for a child to be up and around mm. and 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 i i had to work so hard because well, the standard had to be such that, but, but it was it was too much for me, and then I I, I think I burned. Well, similarly,
0: out. I suppose you find dancers sort of once they retire, that's it. They yeah, don't want, don't want to do it anymore. <laughs> I it don't more? want to.
1: Ex- I never yeah. want to. all those years of dancing and exercising. I yeah. didn't want to do it again. You know, my party trick was I could stand and run my leg up the wall, you know, and hold onto the door frame and stand there with one leg up the wall and the other one down the other way, you know. So doing the splits on the wall, standing up. Um, I don't want to exercise anymore. Yeah. I can't be bothered. It's terrible. I just—it's just, it's just uh, the thought of you know lifting my foot off the floor is more than I can manage. Um, I did for a long time after, and then I just stopped. Um, I found I, I lost. I've just moved house, as I said to you, and across the road and lived doing all that. I've lost six kilos doing that. I'm just going to keep moving houses, just moving house. I'll, I'll get thin again. <laughs> <laughs> I'm down to 80 kilos, so you know I want to be 75. All right. Yes.
0: Another house. I yeah, think. another house, I think, yes. So when did the theatre enter your life? It was always there. I yeah.
1: mean, I, I loved I, the, the radio I told you about, and there was always this imagination. What did you do to amuse yourself? Well, it was the radio. Periods. oh, Ronnie, they called me Ronnie. Ronnie, will you stop asking bloody question go and listen to the wireless and I, because the wireless was on the abc all day from the moment beria got up she would turn it on and i just listened to that all day you know the hospital half hour and for you at home and and yours for the asking which were request programs and i knew all the songs to all the the words to all the songs and and it was just it was a it was it was a, a childhood of I didn't like other kids. They were they wanted to play cowboys and Indians and shoot the well. I quite liked the Indians. I didn't want to shoot them, you yeah. know. And they'd be running around on imaginary eighteen-hand horses in a hundred and fifteen-degree heat. I just thought that was silly. I didn't want to do that. So I'd go and read a book, and and I I had all my I had my coronation books. I still have them, um, uh, and I. It, 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 there was a lot of domestic violence, not with my father, but what with the third husband, the Slav. He was a he was a wretched he was a horrible man. Horrible man. And and he used to belt bury her all the time. And and she'd say and I, I knew there was trouble coming because she'd say um, Ronnie, go and read one of your coronation books or go and read one of your queen books. And I'd go in my bedroom and disappear and, and read, you know, these, these books. And I curiously, when I got to London, I, I found I vaguely knew my way around because I'd followed the coronation route procession from the abbey, from the palace to the abbey and then all around London, Regent Street and, you know, Marble Arch and Piccadilly and all of that. I vaguely knew where the Haymarket was. I knew sort of where they were in my mind. And I was and, and that coupled with playing Monopoly, of course, as we all did in those <laughs> days, I knew London quite well. You didn't well. need any but sat-nav but no, whatsoever. I didn't need any of that. I knew where it all
0: was. So, so is Roland your original name? Mm. Was it, Ronnie was just a, Ronnie a was. They,
1: they, yeah, they call, I don't know why they called me Ronnie. I just became Ronnie. Yeah, oh. everybody called me that.
0: Your first job in the theatre, is that... In Perth, yes, yeah. I,
1: I, I left school and I did two years of nursing training, um, in, while I was doing my licentiate from Trinity College in London, and then I went to uh, uh, I went to the ABC and auditioned for a job as an announcer, and I failed. And then they said because in those days you had to have a working knowledge of three, preferably five languages and they said, you know, your are Italian and your Latin and your your French are all right, but um your your German and your Polish and your Russian are not very good. So I went away. They said go away for three months. Well, was and that just,
0: so your pronunciation Oh absolutely pronunciations had to be absolutely, yeah, things.
1: absolutely perfect. Um so I went away and for three months and came back. They said, well, the German and the Polish are all right, but the Russian's still not very good. Go away another three months. I went back and I passed then. And I still have problems with, and I've lived in Moscow, uh, in Russia, and I still have problems with with um, um, Russian pronunciation. They're, they're, so, they're, they're, they're so tricky. Anyway, um, and, that, and I was at the ABC. They took me on as a cadet announcer in the children's department with Nancy Nunn. Judy Nunn's mother was the producer. Um, um, and that, that's that, fine that's, that's, that's that, <laughs> Herman that, no that's Penny that's Penny, that's Penny, Penny the blind oh, one oh, oh. and you know what she wants she wants something to eat oh. and she's in the kitchen barking and Sh- saying Christian bring me my food you know that's
0: what she's doing <laughs> should we stop for a minute yeah
1: Oh, well, we were talking about Nancy Nunn until so I had to go and get, stop the dog from barking. Um, Nancy Nunn was the producer, Judy Nunn's mother, and she was an actress in Perth. And, and Nancy had had a stroke and she talked out of the side of her mouth. But she was a very funny actress. She did. She was one of those ladies who'd sort of wear funny knickers and lift a dress up and, you know, all of that sort of sight gag. She did all of that stuff so brilliantly. Um, and so Nancy gave me a job. And, and I remember when something happened and I... Uh, what something I'd done something which which she saw and she sent me a little message through Judy and said tell Ronnie that I thought he was much funnier as the pink elephant in whatever it was that I did for for Nancy on on the children's on the children's programs at the ABC so I was there and then Edgar Metcalf was running the playhouse in Perth and so I uh, went and auditioned for him. He was doing the pantomime Goldilocks and the Three Bears at the Circus, with Ros Barr as the principal boy. Uh, and I went and auditioned and I got a job. And so I was the front end of Mavis the Dancing Horse, with Greg the late Greg Tepper was the back end. Um, he was the horse's ass. I didn't want to be the horse's <laughs> ass. Oh no, <laughs> um, the lead. I was the lead. Yes, um, and so in all sorts of bits and pieces. And I was. I was. I'd, I'd been going to Norma Atkinson. I'd been dancing with her for a couple of years. So I sort of vaguely knew my way around. You know, a few dance steps and all of that. And then I continued that. And then Edgar offered me. Um, small parts ASM at the Playhouse and I was there for some time then he went off to Perth we did all sorts of plays it was wonderful in those days because it was fortnightly rep and you were doing Henry IV part one and two and Captain Carvello and Hot and Cold in all rooms and 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 uh, Brides of March and Devil's Advocate and Oh Mary Mary. W- were Just you
0: acting or was it stage b- management? Bits and
1: pieces, bits and, pieces bits of bits of and both, yeah, right. small parts, and, yep. and we did the Marasade. I played Voltaire and the nice little part Voltaire in in the Mar-a-Sard. Um that he did. That ran for four weeks, I think, or five weeks. It had to be according to the contract. Um, so there was really quite interesting stuff, and I was learning on the job. I mean, I I vaguely knew what it was about because I'd always been, and my father took me to the, and when we were at school, we used to go regularly to the Playhouse to see to see shows there. So I'd seen, you know, um, Peter Collingwood and Rosbar and James Beattie and 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 and, and, and uh, Mori Ogden and all of those people who were there in those days in Perth. When it was a fantastic company, Alan Lander went over there, and and. Uh, Edgar was one of the few companies that, that actually employed per- John Sumner did it as well in, in at Melbourne the Theatre, at the Union yeah. Theatre and then which became the Melbourne Theatre Company. Uh, and it was a, a and actors were very keen to get to Perth to spend a couple of years there doing fortnightly rep, you know, a play every two weeks. We started rehearsal at ten past ten, isn't that funny? Every day and rehearsed till two o'clock. And then you went home and you learned your lines and the ASM went out, you know, to buy props and do all that and you came back and did the evening performance. Only five days a week from ten past ten until two o'clock, and then Roz Barr would head straight down to the beach and she was as brown as a berry and you know a little white sprite sports car driving around perth um, and Peter Morris was there at the same time, and uh, some really good people came through Perth and uh, you know were sort of cutting their teeth and and just coming out of drama school and 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 working um and I enjoyed those years. And then and then Edgar, went, as I said, went away and at time came to go to Perth, uh, to Sydney. And I moved on from there.
0: Were your parents happy about a career in the arts? Um, I don't
1: think they really thought about it. Right. My mother came to see me in the pantomime and she loved it. <laughs> um, look, th- my father just, my father, he took me. I, I finished school, and this was the frightening thing. You have the carol service, the end, of, and suddenly the next, after five years of being locked away in this sort of, you know, bubble, you, I didn't realise that boarding school was such a bubble. You had nothing, you didn't know what was really happening in the real world, and he took me to a marvellous boarding house in Bayview Terrace, run by Mrs McNichol, where all young people lived, and it was fully serviced, and, and he paid my first two weeks' rent, and that was it. I was on my own. And I was. Right. I never. I never asked for any help, and I. I just did what I wanted to do. I went. Used to go to the theatre. I knew what it was about, and I. I worked out how. I. I saw an advertisement in the newspaper for announcers at the ABC, and so I worked out that you obviously apply, and I wasn't. Yeah. You know, and, 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 of course, the the, the my, one of my tutors for my, my licentiate from Trinity College in London was Muriel Bird, and she'd been a radio actress on BBC, on the ABC in Perth for many years. So she told me what to do. She then encouraged me to... She pushed me in the... I'd forgotten about her. She pushed me in the right direction and told me how I needed to go about it. But they, I, I think they were pleased that I, you know, but I don't think... My mother used to... She said to me one day, it's funny, the other three were born in... The other three were born in the night, in the morning, and you were born in the night. Maybe that's why you're so different from them. She couldn't work it out. Yeah. But she had a fabulous singing voice. She had a really good, a really good, clear soprano voice. And, and everybody says that, but my mother could actually sing. It was a really good, clear soprano voice. Um, so maybe, and and I had it seems that I had I had musical talent on her side of the family. I don't know about my father's side because I don't know anything about them. So I think that that's probably where it came from. But were they happy? I think so.
0: So arriving in Sydney, yes, are you working in stage management at this point? Is this mm. with Harry and Miller? No, or? no. I went no? first
1: to, to I went first to uh, Alexander Archdale was running the what was the community theatre, which eventually became the Marion Street Theatre. And so I went at Kalara, yes, and that was that was a monthly that was monthly rep. Joan Bruce, Anne Hattie, Max Meldrum, Tony Ingerson, Peter Adams, Kirsty Child. Um, a whole lot of people go. I remember we did a production of Richard III there with Peter Adams playing um, Richard III, and Rex Cramphorn wrote a review in the Bulletin which said Alexander Archdale's production of Richard III at the Mary at the uh, community theatre in Kalara with with Peter Adams in the title role has all the possibilities of being a very good radio play except the voices aren't good enough. <laughs> <laughs> so that was there, and then from there yeah. Harry and Miller. Um, advertised for a, a a boy Friday, a dog's body, and about three hundred young people applied, and I got the job. And I went and I worked on hair and superstar and boys in the band and the Rocky Horror Show, and uh, that was much later. But at that stage, boys in the band and 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 Sleuth with Patrick Mcnee and Butley with Patrick with with Peter Wingard and No Sex Please We're British with with Jonathan Daly and Bob Grant um, all of the things that Harry M did I then worked on Boys in the Band was quite a an well, that notorious was an extraordinary production wasn't it, it. Yes. Yeah. well there was the first homosexual play in which because at the same time in Sydney I remember uh, Max Phipps had been in uh, Fortune and Men's Eyes at the I think it was the ensemble or, yes the ensemble I'm pretty sure maybe the independent doesn't matter one of them um, and that was equally controversial but Boys in the Band with John Crummel and, and Charlie Little Henry Zeps. Henry Zeps, yes. Um, thank you. I was trying to think of his <laughs> name. Um, uh, and, and that, of course, went to court. And Arthur Ryler in Melbourne here. Arthur Ryler used to keep all those dirty magazines in his... He was a very peculiar man. Was he the and censor or he, something? Yeah, he was the sort of, yes. He, he was a, 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 I've forgotten what he was, Secretary of the State or something, I can't remember. But he was responsible. He's some kind of censorship and he took them to court and, and, uh, um, there's a very interesting thing happened in Newcastle. I was only twenty-one, and I took it to Newcastle. Um, Boys in the band. Boys in the band. Oh, so went on a
0: big. Oh yes, went on. Tour. Oh
1: yes, went everywhere. And, and so, but I was in Newcastle, and the police came knocking. And I was twenty-one or twenty-two. And I th- I think now how brave I was. And they came and said, the line in the play was, Emery used to leap through the swinging doors and say, who do you have to fuck to get a cup of coffee around here? And that was one of the offensive lines. And the police, this, this, these three or four detectives were there, and they, they'd watched it, and I, you know, I didn't take much. Time. And then they said, ah, oh, they said, you know, that line about who do you have to fuck to get it, and I said, yes. Yeah. They said, we reckon you should change that to who do you have to suck to get a cup of coffee because that oh. wouldn't be so offensive. I said, oh, I don't think so. <laughs> I, I can't believe that I actually stood up to them. I was yeah. 20, and in, you know, we're talking nineteen seventy. Yeah. This is a long, you know, forty nine. Oh, 50, Best not dwell 50 on it. years! Fifty years ago, yeah. mamma mia! It can't be! <laughs> Isn't that frightening? Fifty years ago, and I dared to say that to them. Um, so, and that was boys in the band, but but um, and that was my time with Harry M. And then, so
0: you were as a company manager, I guess. Also, no, I was, no, I
1: was. I was. I was everything. Right. Mister Miller actually thought I was going to take over from him. I was doing stage direction production. I was casting. I was doing everything, absolutely, as he made you do. I mean, there was me, Jimmy Sharman, Brian Thompson and Sandra McKenzie. We were the four who really got our starts with Harry and Miller. I mean, I was able to do absolutely everything that I... normally Americans came and did, you know, we were not considered to be capable of doing it. And so we had the bus and truck tours from America who, uh, but Mr. Miller didn't want to do that. He he decided, he knew, of course, we were capable of doing it, more than capable of doing it. Um, and so that was that was all of the, my time with him i there were so many things that we did there you know
0: they on the ground floor for rocky horror and yes, oh, and yes. Superstar. superstar boys in the band yeah all of that
1: and, and all the plays he did patrick mcnee he was the first one to bring out um, the televisions i brought patrick mcnee with jan king janet kingsbury and betty dyson and um, Mary Miller came from the National Theatre to do um, The Secretary Bird, which was a huge success. That toured all around Australia um, several times. Um, and that that played at the uh, at the, the old uh, Palace Theatre, which is now gone in Castle Ray Street, as indeed the Theatre Royal has gone. I remember Patrick was down the road in, we were doing Secretary Bird, and just down the road in the Theatre Royal, Googie was doing Plaza Suite, I think it was.
0: So when you were at Harry Miller, of yes. course, there's the, the iconic production of the Rocky Horror mm, Show, yes. which, which Jim Sharma directed uh, originally in a cinema in Glebe yes. in in Sydney. Um, but that was had, with Reg. Right, yes, yes, with Reg. Then it came to Melbourne and Reg didn't transfer. Right. Max Phipps took
1: over. Right. And it opened at the old Tele Theatre in Johnston Street in Fitzroy. And it had been going and about two weeks later I got a call and Mr Miller said, Rowan, the Rocky Horror Show is no good. I said, oh. He said, can you fix it? Really? But they had done phenomenal business in... That's it. right. Yeah. So he said, you've got two weeks, fix it. So I went in and I jigged it. I rejigged it. And Jim Sharma saw it and hated it and insisted that his name be taken off the program. He took the royalties, but, but he took his name off the program and it ran there for two years. Now, it was doing eight and ten performances a week and it only ended because, and it was packed up, absolutely packed. They sold standing room at the back. You couldn't do it. Now, they used to, you'd stand at the back and there were 30 spaces and they would sell the <laughs> Mr Miller never missed a trick um, and then it, it ran for the two years Max was exhausted and didn't want to continue tried everything a break and money and a, nah, didn't want to silly man he should have <coughs> taken a good holiday and come back so then it went to Adelaide and Max Phipps came back Max Phipps came back and opened it um, and uh, it was a disaster John Finlayson took over he was not very good I have to say um, I thought he would be, but he was no good, and it just closed. It's the only time the Rocky Horror Show has ever been a failure in Australia, and it was in Adelaide. And it was a, it was really a terrible failure. Yeah. They just didn't want to know about it. They, they, they panned it in, 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 in the sort of most extraordinary fashion. I think they resented the, I don't know, where there was all that sort of silly competition that existed in those days. But yeah, yeah. I did do was Hayley Mills was interesting. She came here for John Frost and it took me six months to convince Hayley to do um, The King and I. She can't sing a note, Hayley Mills. Um, so John rang me, Susan Hampshire was going to do it, who's a great friend of mine, um, from, you know, um, the, the Palaces and Foresight Saga and, and, and uh, um, she did that Scottish series, what was that, Monarch of the Glen, um, and so Susan was already in a production there in, in, in London and George Ogilvie was going to direct the, the one for John. And so then Susan decided that this was coming into London. Anyway, so she didn't do it. So John rang and said, do you know Haley said, Well, as it happens, yes, I do. Um, he said, I'd like her to do it. I said, well, give me a try. So I, f- I spoke to Haley, and she said no. And uh, she didn't want to do it. Uh, and I said, why? She said, well, I don't really sing. So, um, so I sent her off to singing voice classes, and it took six months. We finally convinced Hayley to come and do The King and I. And then she wrote me a letter after all and said, thank you very much. I'm so glad you convinced me because every actor dreams of having one production like this in their life. And you've given it to me.
0: Brilliant. Mm. 'Cause it was that time during the seventies and eighties where oh, we, we saw a lot of international stars. Huge
1: stars, stars came here. I worked do. with most of them. I was really lucky because you know, many of them were HMM or Harriet Miller or Ken Brodziak, don't forget. So I was working with Mr. Brodziak, um, because they were in in association. So I, I really did have a I had a slew of those people. I, I sometimes think, Oh yes, I oh oh yes, of course I did a play, or I worked oh yes, that one. Yeah, I just don't remember because there were so many of them. Um, it was a fantastic... Day. You could smell the excitement in, in Melbourne. Um, and I was based in Melbourne I, when I came to the Melbourne Theatre Company. I was still working for Harry M, even though I was, at, I was at the Melbourne Theatre Company. And in Sydney as well, you could smell the excitement in the air. Who were
0: some of the big names you worked with that were, were impressive because they were so delightful or perhaps uh, not so delightful?
1: oh... They're all delightful in their own way. There no. aren't too many that are you. Know, they're, they're sometimes a bit tricky, but they're tricky because they want to be good. Oh. Look, you know I, I remember um, the, the thing of um, the pleasure of his company was Sir Douglas Fairbanks Jr. And uh, uh, Stanley Holloway, David Langton, and Carol Ray and Christine Amor—they were—they was super fantastic. Deborah Carr, I brought her, I organised for her to come here in the day after the fair. She was delightful. Patrick, as I say, he was terrific. Honor Blackman. Wonderful, exciting. Dame Anna was across the road. I didn't work with Dame Anna, but I came to know her quite well um, because of Googie, you know, and she was she was equally equally delightful. I, Googie rang me and said, oh, darling, darling, Michael's in in Melbourne. I said, said Michael Redgrave, darling. I said, oh, of course, of course. She said, you, you, I want you to look after him. So she sent me off to the Windsor and I went and looked after, after Michael Redgrave while he was here. And he was just, it was just wonderful to be with him. But it's like you saying, you know, you did, you worked with Sir Peter Hall. I'm so envious of you that I, Mm. I never even met Sir Peter Hall, you know. And these were, these were wonderful people who were around, and 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 they were, they were Jonathan Daly watching him, even though he was, he did um, no sex please. We're British, and he suddenly decided he was going home. The place was booked out, you know, huge advanced bookings and he got homesick and broken love life and all of that so he just nicked off and went home left a note for the stage manager um and and, but watching him work and seeing how clever he was you know at 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 all that timing that, that 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 they have um Peter Wingard, he was—he 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 was an eccentric, wonderful. I used to see Peter in London. Jonathan, of course, and Jonathan—no, um, um, no, no um, um, Sleuth with uh, Patrick Wymark, and I've forgotten his name. The other actor, there you go. Gary Walton came and did it eventually with Richard Todd. Um, trying to think of these names off the top of my head it's so difficult, a, well I can remember uh, them, it's a tsunami of is, names yes.
0: what about John and Googie, they, they were brought oh, well, the Love like, Fontaines d- d- of d- the d-
1: d- d- Googie was the most talented woman I've ever worked with, one of the most talented actors I've ever worked with, she knew how to rip a laugh out of an audience and, and like John Frost we both became very good friends I did I did about 12 plays with Googie over the time and about 14 with Frank Thring at the Melbourne Theatre Company and oh, Leo McKernan of course, in The Man Who Shot the Albatross and Gloria Dawn in Mother Courage. I'd forgotten them. But Googie in The Cherry Orchard and An Ideal Husband, I used to stand in the wings and watch her every night. I never... F- Just seeing the the technique and the way she she played with the audience and and she knew exactly what she was doing. I mean, look, little things like she was sitting on a chair. Uh, the Cherry Orchard had been sold, Act 4 of The Cherry Act 3 is Act 4, whichever one. The Cherry Orchard's been sold. Act 3, it is. It's The boy. Scene. um and and she's there, and she'd broken her pearls. She had these, and they were all, and she was holding these pearls, and you know she she didn't let the audience know, but it was just, and she her she was crying, and at the same time shoving all these pearls down her bosom, and and it it sounds sort of trivial, but it's just. The capacity to deal with everything that happened on stage and still involve the audience, and and not for one moment to to miss to miss a beat, so that the audience is distracted by what's happening. That was her cleverness, and and her, I, I just. I just marvelled at, at her timing, her comedy timing was, was, she did the best drunk I've ever, Leo McKern and Googie Withers did the best drunks I've ever seen. Leo used to come into the wings when we did Patat, which was, um, we did at the Melbourne Theatre Company, closed on the Saturday night and opened again on the Monday night at the Princess Theatre because it, the, it was so booked out. But Leo used to come into the wings and I'd say, um, do your drunk for me. He, he did a fabulous drunk. He used to, and it was one of those drunks you can't, quite rigid you know the eyes can't quite focus. focus yes <laughs> he was he, he was fantastic to watch he 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 really did make things you know um, that'll yeah, be the avon lady. that'll be the avon lady <laughs> <sighs> where are we up
0: Oh, the Avon Lady. Right? Oh, the got Avon Lady. Oh, yeah, got the lipstick. It's the
1: eye shadow she was bringing today. Um, uh, now, Frank Thring.
0: Oh, extraordinary, because yes. you wrote a book with Frank, yeah, the I actor did. who laughed,
1: mm-hmm. and and all those plays with Frank. My God, there was an actor, and and the first play I did with him was Galileo at the Melbourne Theatre Company, I'd, I'd seen him do his. Um, he'd been in Perth doing Henry uh, Falstaff in in the MTC's Henry the Fourth. Uh, and his Galileo was just I mean I cannot tell you again. I used to stand and watch him all the time. And then we did a lot of plays together. He was and, and the end of his life was very sad, but oh he was he was very funny and he told one and he and Googie together in, in An Ideal Husband in the Cherry playing brother and sister and then as, as as Lord Cavisham in in he was hysterical. He came down one night and I said, Frank, what have you done? I used to call him Podge. I said, Podge, what have you done? He said, "What do you mean, what I, I said, well, what? "I said you've got your eyebrows on for your moustache and your moustache on for your eyebrows." You've got... He said, "Oh well, bugger it, I'm going on now." So, but and, and he he he, I remember he came to rehearsal one day. He and Googie together were were so funny, and he came in with his huge bauble around his neck, and and she said, "Oh." Darling, she said, what are you wearing around your neck? It's the size of a duck's egg. And he said, it's a diamond. She said, oh, darling, darling, don't be ridiculous. If that were a diamond, it would be in a Queen's collection. He said, well, it is, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> he had wonderful stories. And, and, and he used to make me laugh all the time. And, I mean, when you think about all those marvellous films that he went off and did. and, and In Hollywood. Yeah. Oh, mm. yes, you know. And then he told... I, I I know all the stories, so I won't bore you with them now, but, but I've I actually committed myself. I thought I really must write them down. I don't know whether Frank has ever recorded them all, but I hope so. Um, but he was a marvel, we did about 14 plays together and went on tour and all over the country with him. I remember Wangarattara used to go down to the park. He used to throw knives into
0: trees. Bizarre! I know. So he carry a knife around. He,
1: oh, he always carried a. He he right. murdered a man in Spain. Really? When they were doing El Cid, they had to get him out of the country for a while. Yes. Wow. This man went to rob him, and and Frank said, he said, "Give me your money or your pesetas or whatever they have in Spain." And he said, "Oh yes." So he and he went into the bag and pulled out and just put it straight into him. Right. The man died.
0: Do you? Hmm. No, no, no. Melbourne Theatre Company, you were there for a while. Six so. six we're, years or something. Was that yeah. under John Sumner? Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. That, that
1: was a fabulous experience. Again, you know, that, that sort of work doesn't exist anymore. We had a permanent company of 20 people and well, we, they, the company, it was, uh, you know, there was Wendy Hughes and Dennis Olson and Freddie Parslow and Simon Chilvers, Irene escort, Tony Llewellyn-Jones, but just the list went on endlessly. And others came in, Helen Morse and Jackie Weaver, and they all came in um and it it was it was such a rich fertile time and 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 john did marvelous productions and Sir 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 Tyrone Guthrie came in to do uh, uh, All's Well, and and uh Joachim came from the Berliner Ensemble to do Mother Courage with Gloria Dawn, and then he directed the the Cherry Orchard, and George Ogilvy directed the um, uh, the um, Ideal Husband. Uh, Peter James came from London to do from the National to do. Uh, couple of stopards and things that were there and that they did, and um, was a wonderful time, absolutely a fantastic time
0: and overseas for a while also oh, England yes. and
1: America, yes, touring around with Googie and working for bill kenright and 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 and, and, uh, and being based of course in in uh, also for television, doing interviews for television, which I quite enjoyed i enjoyed immensely because I interviewed all sorts of i've came to know Barbara Carpen very well, and she she adored me and I adored her. I used to go and stay with her quite a lot because I went to interview her and she liked me and and, and she'd said she'd go down on Friday afternoon and it'd come Sunday time she Oh no, no, don't don't do don't go don't you stay stay you stay till Wednesday. What are you doing? I'm not, well, stay here talk to me, you know. And, and I had a wonderful time at Canfield Place with, with her and um, the Duke Duke <laughs> of Marlborough invited me to stay at Blenheim Palace and I had marvellous time in
0: You've been around. I had a wonderful time, yes. And tell me about Debbie Reynolds, because you worked oh, quite closely a with her. Oh, she was a great friend. I'd yeah. forgotten her. Yeah. Well,
1: she was a very good friend. Um, in fact, one Sunday morning the phone rang, and she was in Melbourne, and she said... Where are you, darling? And I said, I'm coming around to meet your mother. And I said, do you know where I live? She said, no, but the driver does. I've checked with him. He knows where, exactly where you live. Where I'm I'm on my way. So she came around. And so Debbie hadn't been to bed. I know she hadn't been to bed because, because the voice was right down there. And, and so she came in and said, she said, where's your mother? And so I took her through to meet Birria. And, and uh, there she was at Hupper. And they were talking about Debbie's songs. And, of course, Birria knew all about Debbie. But, of course... Birria's favourite song of Debbie's was Abba Dabba Honeymoon. So there at half past nine in the morning was Debbie singing Abba Dabba Honeymoon to my mother. Um, when she died, I couldn't believe that. I'd phoned her a couple of weeks before she died and we had this conversation. I said, I'll ring you for Christmas. She said, don't forget. She was a bit frail, but but she sounded fine, you know. And then the next thing, she ca- Carrie died and then Debbie
0: died. Yeah, that was tragic, terrible, wasn't it? Yeah, Yes.
1: We met, uh, we met over a hot water bottle. She borrowed my, she came and she had terrible period pains and she said, oh, I need a heat pad. I said, I've got a hot water bottle. She said, I'll t- give it to me. And I never got it back. I kept asking her for years for my hot water bottle. I never got it back. It was a good one, too. <laughs> that was our sort of running gag. <laughs>
0: Now what are your current artistic pursuits Rob? well i have just you're, written you're writing a play yeah, aren't you, I've yeah? written
1: several, but the letters from the heart John Frost is doing it 's a play that starts in London in the fall of nineteen forty one takes in the fall of Singapore and ends in Australia fifty years later and it's between uh, uh the letters between Rupert and Diana uh, It had a tryout in London with Hugh Bonneville and Carolyn langrish from judge john deed Hugh Bonneville obviously from Downton Abbey and was terrific um and then it's been rewritten. Belinda Lang is directing, and we've re-edited and edited and re-edited and edited, and now it's ready to go. And uh, John's been fantastic with it because he just kept saying, no, it's not quite ready, it's not... And he said some really interesting things. I gave John his first ever job right. um, as a stage manager on Winnie the Pooh all those years ago um, when we did it in Melbourne. Uh, and then uh, uh, then we did, of course... He said to me the other day, we were talking, and he said something about... Um, uh the, the kingfisher and he said you, but you were stage manager. I said, "Oh, was I?" I said, oh, "I've forgotten that." But it, so he was my stage manager on that as well, and that was Googie and John touring right? around. And Frank Thring. And Frank Thring, mm-hmm. the three hander. Yeah, it was a <coughs> wonderful production. George Ogley directed it, um, and uh, uh, so the play is it's it, the love letters. And John's been working on it, uh, letters from the heart rather, and uh, which are love letters between two people, Diana and Rupert, as I said. And uh, he, uh, we're now trying to cast it. He's ready to do it here in this year, it's hopefully June, July, and August of this year, and then from here to London, and then hopefully from there to Broadway. That's the plan. I mean, that might be a two-year plan. But the Australia-London link is immediate. Start it here and then take it there. But we can't cast it. No bugger wants to come here. Not even for ready cash, it seems to me. <laughs> you know, there's so much television work around. And you were saying all these, these slew of people that I worked with, you know, all the, the name after name. Um, you just couldn't do it now. They, they, there's too much television. They want to be there just in case something comes up. And they don't want to have to learn lines and do it eight performances a week. Actors have become lazy. The theatre actor has all but disappeared. You know,
0: it's more about the electronic actor now. Well,
1: it's about you know two minutes of learning, you know, and then they can they can laugh and and then oh yeah, Craig can run on and do it, and then you know away they go. Um, It 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 requires much more effort for them to actually be doing it um, eight times a week, and so it's with somebody at the moment. Hopefully, he will say yes. We have the female. We have a very good female who's not known, but is a brilliant actor. Um, We just need to get the good male.
0: And the, the pursuit continues. It, continues. it continues. Roland, thank you for uh, for chatting today. It's My been, pleasure. been terrific. I'm sorry about all the interruptions. Oh, no, I love all the kind <laughs> of The a <laughs> one lady.
1: Yeah, yeah the A1 yeah. a- lady is NeNe King. Oh, Yes, wow. you know, who was once the most powerful woman in Australian publishing. Yeah. Woman's yeah. Weekly, Woman's Day, all of those things.
0: Yeah, brilliant. Yes. Um... Uh, Profile recently in that series yes, on the ABC, yeah, on the ABC. Yeah, they, yeah. They,
1: they, they, they paper, paper, paper giants, gi- paper giants. Yeah, yes, yeah. they they did the Ita Buttrose one and then the Nene King Dulcie Bowling supposed war that went on between. It was just that Nene was very good at those magazines, you know. When you consider what she did, if she'd done in Australia what she'd done, if she'd done in England or America what she'd done in Australia, she would be uh, Anna Winter. I mean, I really mean yeah. that. Yeah, the success was so phenomenal with those. I mean, Mr. Packer used to call her call her his cash cow because she did make so much money for that company with those two magazines extraordinary so that was the avon lady oh (laughs) true thanks roland thank you
0: and that was my adventurous conversation with roland Rococcielli. the magic of podcasting always authentic and a very personal touch Roland is a lovely bloke and one of theatre's great personalities and possessed of an infinite number of tales and anecdotes from an extensive career. Well, Series 3 of Stages is off and running. Thanks for tuning in to this episode. Many more great conversations heading your way throughout the year. I promise. I'm Peter Ayers. Catch you next time.